0: St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents Wisdom, recordings of classes on the classic texts of the Orthodox Christian faith by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father
1: Daniel. Will Christ our God open our hearts and minds to study uh, the words of your servant ignatius and as we study his words may we come to a fuller understanding of you and your bride the church in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen amen so everybody read a bit of ignatius already if not this have you read ignatius in the past yes no maybe so know, know, know the Ephesians. that's what we're going to go over today so, excellent. You're welcome. So, before we dig into the text, i just going to ask if there's any particular parts of the text or any of questions that you had in reading the text.
0: I had a couple things I and uh, he mentions a couple of times um, that for the sake of our common name and hope, and in, in my translation that I got, anyway, he, he talks about being a prisoner for the sake of the name, capital N name. Where? Um, which chapter is that in? Uh, let's see, got up in the line here. In the at the yeah toward the beginning, in verse one and verse three says um, for even if I am a prisoner for the name I have not yet reached Christian perfection and I was wondering the connection between that and and the Old Testament when they talk about God mentions putting his name in the the angel that's going before
1: them out of the the exodus yeah so the Old Testament is fascinating for that aspect of the name of God and the holiness of that name and some aspect of even the revelation of God's name that you get in like Exodus, that you have some revelation of who He is, um, that then later spins into you'll get medieval uh, commentators. let will say one of the like jobs that Adam had was like giving names mm-hmm. to things so that was part of his stewardship, and because <laughs> they see so much power in actually naming something, um, and then you see in the Book of Acts. Uh, the idea, of, like it is through the name of Jesus Christ that salvation has come. There's this, and I think it's not because then that can. <laughs> the other trajectory in kind of medieval thought or later Christian or even like Jewish thinking is that names give you power, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So something like Kabbalah and these other kind of things where you get power over someone or something because you know its real name. I think there's even like some folk tales where like, or tricky things. Like, I'm trying. I can't pinpoint what but I know in the back of my head like, are these it's stories of the Solomon <laughs> traditions. Well, we'll say, there you go, where this idea of, like, once you know my name, like, somehow you really know who I am, and, like, I've been exposed, and um, so I think uh, the for Ignatius, and I think that you see it in Paul and in the book of Acts, is that the weight of the name is then behind that God actually has a name and that he was a person, And that it's something really specifically attached to Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, who dwelt among us. Um, Even though Paul and Ignatius would have been, you know, born out of, uh, not in the time where they were, you know, a part of that that inner circle from the beginning, but that they are able to talk about the name of Jesus Christ. This actually brings up one of the kind of themes that I like, um, that always hits me probably the strongest about... Ignatius, and it can actually start us off in um, uh, the greeting in the first chapter. Um, For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the, I might read like sections, Um, but um, but at this point, I am going to read the greeting because uh, I want us to think about uh, what this language reminds us of. So, greeting, uh, Sorry, this is, this is the title. <laughs> uh, it's like if you're reading in Romans and you're like seven, I <laughs> chapters, <laughs> or doing the prayers, like you know, where they'll do now and ever, and then they just move on because in prayer books it'll just say like glory and then now and ever. And I've heard people go glory now and ever. It's like no, that's <laughs> uh, you have to actually do glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now and ever into ages of ages. Can I ask you something quickly for you? yes, yes, yes. Um, in,
2: in my version, there are brackets, and then there's scripture references.
1: Yep. Uh, are, are those out of the original text, or were they added in? They're added. You okay. know how you can tell? It wasn't... Uh, does anybody off the top of their head remember where the verses and chapter break down? It's pretty late. Yeah, mid,
0: late medieval Late medieval
1: period. period. Okay, so that,
2: that's
0: what
1: I was...
2: Maybe thinking.
0: even the Reformation era. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty late.
2: And, and I guess a related point, is like in, in paragraph 18 UK... He's, he's writing. My spirit is devoted to the cross, which is a stumbling block to unbelievers, but salvation and eternal life to us. Okay, and and then of course there's there's a bracket quote to, to, to Corinthians. Yep. I mean that quote is straight out of out of the letter of Saint Paul to the Corinthians. Yep. Was was he privy to all those letters at
1: the time that he was writing this? So you're also giving me a perfect <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, launching point because this is actually where I'm going with. A, So if we read uh, just in the first paragraph, uh, and thinking not necessarily of direct quotations, but as I like to talk about, um, it's actually from, uh, it's really revolutionized New Testament scholarship in the past like 15 years, uh, maybe even 20 years, uh, which is this idea that if you if you're reading paul it can be very hard to discern what he's doing with the old testament in certain places because if you actually go and back where he quotes something and you go back and you're like scratching your head like what why does this quote from this passage have anything to do because as far as i can tell i don't get it <laughs> and so there's a lot that you'd get uh debates about this where they are basically saying like paul is just cherry picking he wants an argument, and so he goes and he says, I like this line from the Psalms, I like that line from Micah, uh, I like that line from uh, Deuteronomy, and it suits my purpose, and I don't really care about the context. Well, that was the older consensus. Now the consensus is, well, if you actually read these books not as like uh, self-referential like textbook things, right? like. Uh, you need to read them within the broader like narrative of what Scripture, so that the prophets they presume and then they use the motifs and uh, tropes and things that you know that you would have found in the law, that you might find in the Psalms or the, these themes. Paul is doing the exact same thing when he's making arguments and he's quoting something. You might have to read the whole book of a prophet in order to understand like, oh, the broader context of this is. Not, you know, he's not just cherry-picking lines. What he's doing, they call it uh, Richard Hayes' one out of, uh, I think he's just retired from Duke. Um, But he calls it uh, Echoes of Scripture. Uh, And there's a book that he published, I think, it was when I was in seminary, so like two or three years ago, that if you pick it up, I think Baylor Press, uh, which is about the four Gospels, he does a beautiful job of showing how the Old Testament echoes through, like, just a few words in, like, the Gospel of John is an echo of Ezekiel. And then if you can see then how Ezekiel is then, like, um, assumed through the entire book, Gospel of John, uh, I think it's even called maybe e- Echoes of Scripture. I can't remember off the top of my head what the book is called. But um, I think then when you realize how Paul is thinking about it, it also helps you read the fathers, too. The fathers, uh, especially if you read, like, Chrysostom, and, as we'll see in Ignatius, they live and breathe Scripture so much so that they will talk like it, even when they're not directly quoting it. Or they like—I remember going through this one passage of Chrysostom at one point, and it looked like he was misusing Paul. But what he's actually doing is he deeply understood it like Paul's argument uh, in First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, and he's like. Using it in a like um, ironic way in like critiquing somebody else, but he but on face value it looks like he's like just cherry picking Paul, but he's actually deeply understands the argument and it informs his entire like few paragraphs of how he's arguing uh, so if we look at Ignatius just in the greeting we uh, I want us to think about uh, a particular passage um, are we all coming we all are coming with different translations here right so it doesn't even really matter who reads. Does anyone want to read the greeting? I can
0: try it from my. Own here. All right. heartiest greetings of pure joy in Jesus Christ from Ignatius the God inspired to the church at, Ephes- at Ephesus in Asia. Out of the fullness of God the Father you have been blessed with large numbers and are predestined from eternity to enjoy forever continual and unfading glory. The source of your unity and election is genuine suffering, which you undergo by the will of the Father and of Jesus Christ our God, hence you deserve to be considered happy. So,
1: what's, that's a very interesting translation compared to my Victorian. Uh, is that the NIV of Ignatius? No, this is just, uh, I was telling you, uh, Oh, somebody I, found, who... I found it's
0: like, a, it's like a, a graduate student's like work at college, I think, is what I found.
1: Alright, so... Uh, some interesting readings there, and I don't. I've, I've not been looking at the Greek, and even if I was looking at the Greek, I would be able to not help you any further. Anyways, uh, I'm not that good with Greek. Uh, my brain just doesn't work that way for whatever reason. God did not do that for me. Uh, the what does this passage remind you of? Paul. Paul. Anything more specific than Paul? Yes, Paul. Uh, right. Anything? Writing to the churches. He. he will, Bring it, bring it a little bit closer home. Like which letter? Yeah. Uh, what uh, are Ephesians? <laughs> uh, yes. <'cause> that's, yeah. <laughs> yes. I it about you go read Ephesians uh, 1 3 through 7, 11 through 14. Guess what the themes are? <laughs> huh. The themes of Ignatius. Uh, now, does that mean he was sitting there dictating this letter while, like, some, you know, reading out of the scroll of Paul? Uh, maybe I tend to think more of, of that part of the the idea of that echoes of scripture that we're talking about is something about the way the Jewish people, pious Jews would have known scripture, right? They're used to the reading of scripture. So when they hear things, they are able to then connect those things to what they already know. So the ears of the Ephesians, they probably have that, that uh, letter from Paul. Like, I don't know, Maybe it's already gilded into, you know, some form that they, because they would have publicly read all these letters as they came. So now Paul, like for the Ephesians, you know, even a generation later, they have, we have a letter to us. And Ignatius, of course, is echoing uh, very specifically the themes of Ephesians. Um, what do you make of some of these themes that he talks about? Because what, well, I'm going to hold off on what I think. <laughs> Well, um,
2: blessed in greatness by the fullness of God the Father, foreordained before the ages to be mm-hmm. an lasting and unchanging glory forever. Okay, so well, ordained.
1: Yes, predestination. I wasn't going to use the, use that word, but <laughs> let's go there because I'm fine with using it as long as we use it how Paul uses it, mm-hmm. which is that God did foreordain or predestine His body to be the glory of God the Father, greatness and fullness and the unchangeable glory brought about by Jesus Christ and the, and the Holy Spirit I think what happens with something like predestination is we get afraid of it, to be rightfully so because it is one of those uh, hotly debated topics in a lot of Protestant circles and you will almost never hear about it in Orthodox circles um, that's not that it's not in the tradition it's not talked about it's that it's not. It does not have attached to it the same kind of. How should I say this? Individualistic pulling out my hair about whether or not I'm saved or not, in mm-hmm. uh, that kind of constant inward turn of like, uh, like Roman. Where they use the language of Romans seven, you know, all the time. Um, but it's more of uh, God has foreordained that the church <laughs> is to be this. So when you're baptized, chrismated, sealed in the church, uh, you are foreordained. God of all, that you would be a part of the church and that that would be uh, to the, his glory. I don't think we have to be afraid of that, right? Read John Damascus, it's there. Uh, Dionysius, Maximus, all of the great writers. Providence, the idea that God actually structures reality, <laughs> creation, and the church for the church and for his glory, that's who God is. There are there any other comments or thoughts about the first through a few? I'm just saying chapters for the sake like, paragraphs, if you will, or demarcations. Uh,
0: the paradoxical, like, uh, the source of your unity and election is genuine suffering, mm-hmm. in my translation, which you undergo by the will of the Father and Jesus Christ, our God. Hence, you deserve to be considered happy. Because you've been chosen to suffer through the cross. Can we,
1: cross can we
2: back yeah. that to a different translation? Because I'm not even sure what that is. In my translation. Oh, so it's
1: still the same greeting, actually. No, I know, but I'm
2: just saying I don't. I can't track what, what that it's,
0: transition
1: it's, is to
2: what mine. Is. So yeah, being someone united. Someone else read suffer. their.
1: I can read it. Being united and elected to the true passion. So I'm going to guess the word that the Greek is pathos, so, which is passion or suffering by the will of the Father and Jesus Christ our God abundant happiness through Jesus Christ and his undefiled grace
2: why yeah, uh, I think ours is the same my Robert Grant uh, translation united in a like and genuine suffering huh? which is mixed. that's Paul
1: yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I know that you're not questioning that we'd have to have a few conversations before you get ordained. <laughs> I'm not
2: I'm not am not sure that I see though that it's the
1: the suffering of the recipients uh, I, of the letter it looks like it's to me it sounds like the passion of Jesus Christ is what's united. So the reason why I might go in your direction without looking so we could bracket the fact that none of us are looking at greek and using <laughs> our greek grammars right uh, so that would shed some light possibly because sometimes Greek grammar does not shed light. <laughs> uh, if you go to the next chapter, uh, and the f- second uh, sentence there, being the followers of God and stirring up yourselves by the blood of God, you have perfectly accomplished the work which is beseeming to you. That's where I would start leaning more in your direction, Brian. Where, but at the same time, I. I think both are actually true, yeah, kinda, but I...
0: Go ahead. It looks like, because a lot in this letter, he'll like like a tear, like it's you follow Christ just as Christ follows the Father. That's kind of what I saw here, where it's like... Because mm-hmm. it says, by the will of the Father and Jesus Christ are God. So Christ suffered according to the Father's will, and you suffered according to Christ's will.
1: And, and that, that as, like as you read this letter, and you read the corpus of Ignatius, that structure that you are picking up mm-hmm. there so glad I don't even have to point these things out. Uh, That is where the unity flows, right? The entire unity of the Church is because of the will of the Father, the will of Jesus Christ. We follow the will, and then that also then maps onto the hierarchy of the Church too, that the bishop is the locus of that unity. Um, In the same sense, uh, that the locus of the unity of humanity is through Jesus Christ by the will of the Father. So how do you concretely express that unity unless you have someone to kind of come around uh, who leads uh, who uh, suffers and I think that, that actually Ignatius is a perfect example of what a bishop is supposed to be right uh, I, this language and I love it because it, it kind of cuts against, so often against um we, we are a disciple of Christ, uh, but he puts a, a, a different tension or a point to this, which is what? It was actually what you started off with.
0: That and like this beautifully, uh, later he illustrates this whole thing. He says, um, in my translation, your Presbyterian deed, which deserves its name and is a credit to God, is as closely tied to the bishop as the strings to a harp. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah wanna- chapter four. And uh, wherefore you, your accord and harmonious love is a hymn to Jesus Christ. Yes, one and all you should form yourselves into a choir, so that in perfect harmony and taking your pitch from God, you may sing in unison and with one voice to the Father through Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. So that, that, that hierarchy, it's like the notes on the musical staff or whatever it is. It's beautiful. Yeah.
1: Especially of beginning to be a disciple. I'm looking at chapter 3 in the third sentence, uh, but we can just start with the second. For though I am bound for the name of Christ, again, name, mm-hmm. I'm not yet perfect in Jesus Christ. For now I begin to be a disciple, and I speak to his fellow disciples with me. For it is needful for me to have been stirred up by you in faith, exhortation, patience, and long suffering. Um, that this you could see it like for the, the last sentence For even Jesus Christ, our inseparable life, is the manifested will of the Father, as also bishops settled everywhere to the utmost bounds of the earth are so by the will of Jesus Christ. Um, a lot of the criticism about uh, the kind of episcopal system of governance, which I think already presumes that there's options in governance of the church. Uh, because you're saying it's one already by demarcating that instead of something uh, Ignatius would obviously uh, have an issue with since he believes bishops are a manifestation of the will of Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is a manifestation of the will of the Father. Um, But what you have is that he is still an absolute shepherd, right? What starts happening, and it can be a criticism of bishops, uh, is that they are remote, Right? They serve as just kind of um, managers uh, versus actually, as he's saying here, very much this deep relationship that he had uh, with his own people, but then he's also uh, attributing to the Ephesians uh, that they are fellow disciples with him. Right? He, What you can get is attention in the tradition, as you were uh, talking about, Zach, earlier of the uh, sorry, Tim, the hierarchy of Father, Jesus Christ, and then we're supposed to conform our will to that. Um, And you can say then we have a hierarchy in the church. And somebody, especially you can read criticisms of somebody like Dionysius later in the tradition, uh, where there's this idea, it almost seems like the language that he uses is like perfection. So like the bishop is like way closer to God because he's... uh, more perfect than a simple, poor layman, right? That's not Dionysius' words, and you'd have to actually go in and look at how everything works in his way of talking, but over time, that is one of the ways in which Dionysius gets interpreted, uh, because it talks about grace flowing through the hierarchy, Um, and you don't get this in Ignatius. You don't even get a, a, a sniff of this. What you get in Ignatius is that he smells like sheep. <laughs> that he actually smells uh, like and acts like uh, everyone else is in this together, right? The the work of the bishop is not, uh, and I think this would flow for uh, the priesthood, it is not something of lording it over. I mean, Jesus already talks about this in the Gospels. Uh, but you see already in the early literature where because a lot of criticism of Ignatius is that he makes this up and that it's uh, something uh, added that is not essential to Christianity. Um, flowing because, you know, bishops are really just power-hungry individuals who want to lord it over everybody. Um, I don't get that from Ignatius. If you get that from Ignatius, you're probably also going to think that about Paul, too. I
3: mean, <laughs> just in the context, he's headed towards his martyrdom. Yeah. exactly... Right.
1: He's in chains. He's down in business.: Yes. And then we get later I can't remember, because it's hard for me to keep all these letters straight because of he hits on the themes often, uh, where he's looking forward to be ground uh, in the teeth of the lions, because um, he knows what his martyrdom is going, what the end is. So any other things in the first few chapters? Go ahead and look at chapter four. if There's nothing in the first few chapters. That um, sorry, my notes have. Question, Father, is yep. the is the Inesimus here the same? Um, oh, thank you. The so it's a. It, you know what? It is a definite option. It, it is a possibility. Okay. Uh, I don't. I'm, I cannot remember if like the sonoxarian uh, for Onesimus has has him specifically attached. Uh, here uh, or not. Um, but if it is, what's fascinating about it is who it, who was an SMS in, Philae- in the book of Philemon? He's the runaway, the runaway slave. Who is he here? He's a bishop. He's a bishop. So, we got a slave, now a bishop. Uh, the early Christian milieu was full of. A lot of folks from a lot of different uh, socioeconomic uh, political, you want to say, religious backgrounds coming together and to form a new body. So I would not be surprised to see Onesimus as a runaway slave who's now a bishop over a church. Because what qualifies a bishop, uh, later it becomes uh, helpful for a bishop to actually have some uh, I don't want to say power, but some kind of recognition in the public square to when you get like Gregory and Basil and John Chrysostom, uh, you start seeing or like in the West, Gregory the Great and others. The bishop really starts to become a public figure because of how many Christians there are. And then the bishop, it it morphs or like there's additions that besides him being teaching, he's kind of the father of the entire household. And he and the deacons, especially like in Rome, early Rome, you had, uh, there was a lot of care for the poor that was on the shoulder of the bishop to administer, and he usually used uh, a, a group gathering uh, uh, what did Father Hupko called it, when there was too many deacons around, he called it a nuisance of, deac- a nuisance of deacons, uh, there's just too many of them around, uh, I think that's especially true in the altar, if you have a small altar, and you have like four or five deacons, there's just too many bodies uh, but that they would administer uh, the treasury or whatever the church would have because the church started gaining power and influence in the broader world because you also have like widows dying and then they give their estate to the bishop who would then you know, liquidate or use that to create uh, a place for other you know, widows to be able to help younger women or you know, these institutions and things. So the early church grows pretty quickly that way. In chapter 5, in my notes I have here, you have, uh, I think this is a, a chapter worth reading. For if I, in this brief space of time, having enjoyed such fellowship with your bishop, I mean not of a mere human, but of a spiritual nature, how much more do I reckon you happy who are so joined to him as to the church is to Jesus Christ, and as Jesus Christ is to the Father, so that all things may agree in unity? Let no man deceive himself. If anyone be not within the altar, he is deprived of the bread of God. For if the prayer of one or two possesses such power, how much more of that of the bishop and the whole church? He, therefore, that does not assemble with the church, has even by this manifested his pride and condemned himself. For it is written, God resists the proud. Let us be careful, then, not to set ourselves in opposition to the bishop in order that we may be subject to God. You can almost do Everything about Ignatius from just this paragraph, mm-hmm. because he hits on almost every major theme, uh, and then maybe also the next chapter. There's some themes there that aren't hit here. But what jumps out of you about this chapter? Some of it's already been alluded to, but there's kind of, a know in certain terms what he thinks about unity here. You can't be Christian by yourself. Cannot be Christian by yourself to obedience obedience but who', who specifically here to the, oh, the chain. to the bishop right there's a there's the chain of command it's almost like he's given us uh, mm-hmm. here is the uh, I don't know like rear admiral. who are the like top I don't know these military you know somebody at the top of the chain God the Father and you go down and at your local church uh, you have the bishop so here are some Disambiguation in some senses. Uh, we hear for our own experiences, right? How often do we see the bishop, our bishop? I've
0: never seen him two years.
2: You've two never years. seen
1: him? Maybe once every two years? Unless yeah. there's some special occasion that, We're, that needs to be ordained. Right. If, right. If, right. Otherwise. Yes. You're so, paper, yeah. So here's, now, there's a few reasons for this, right? We live uh, in North America where we have, we're not in a historically orthodox country, so we do not have the same uh, proximity to our bishop. If you were to go to Greece, I remember when I was in Crete traveling around, I think I was in three or four different dioceses, which here would be like counties, right? Like the size, because obviously on (laughs) Crete, how many churches, like, you drive past a church, you know, every 10 minutes or so, uh, so you will have a metropolis, uh, that has thousands of people in it, because that is the main, obviously, so, and people know who the bishop is, uh, you can absolutely go and schedule a meeting with him, like, next week and go sit down, and you know, talk to him, or complain at him or something, Uh, We obviously don't have that luxury here because of the way of being a missionary uh, church in North America and that the Diocese of the South stretches from what, New Mexico to Virginia to Florida to Kentucky? Massive amount of uh, space. But in the ancient church uh, around Ignatius' time, you would not have necessarily had a clear um, idea of one bishop uh, per city up until a little bit later. What you kind of have is one bishop per community. So it might even be like neighborhoods or households uh, where you have one person uh, over that. And there there might be then all those households that get together at certain points uh, and have fellowship among the city uh, and then have the bishop. But it takes time. So, in some ways, the ways that we um, and I'm not making an equivalence here uh, but almost like how the you know usually most parishes have one priest uh, and that's how it functions almost the early church basically having one priest is kind of like having your bishop uh, because there was not there was a lot more bishops there than there are now so he, would know his flock. he would know his flock in a very specific way um, right now because and you can see this in even uh, as Christian christianity blossom too so if you go to like moscow bucharest you know massives athens you'll have one bishop of the entire like that city and then you'll have him being assisted by a bunch of vicar bishops so that like obviously he can't be at every single church on their feast day but he can send somebody from you know close to him who episcopal uh to go and celebrate the liturgy so this is just some of the ways in which uh we have thousands upon thousands of Christians to attend to. Things shift a little bit. Um, I especially appreciate the beginning of chapter 5 where he talks about his fellowship with the bishop was not of a merely human uh, nature, but of a spiritual nature. I think that's an encouragement for us um, to develop uh, amongst ourselves in our own fellowship uh, A spiritual fellowship and not just because it's really easy to have uh, mere human fellowship with each other because it's easy to just, you know, goof off or talk about the games at uh, UT or how awful they are this season or whatever. Uh, I don't know anything about UT. I just know they're doing awful this season. That's all I need to know. know. (laughs) 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 How uh, next year, though? (laughs) (laughs) Right. What? Um,
2: does that spiritual relationship look like? Is it is it more like with a father confessor? Yeah, is, uh-huh. because that you know that that's what I that's what I would you know the, the, like the man that knows all about you knows what your family knows
1: the spiritual burdens that you're dealing with. So what what has kind of happened? Uh, yes, what has um, because of our uh, land, space, time, etc what has happened is the bishop is basically the shepherd to the shepherds. That's how like, our archbishop will talk about uh, is that the bishop, yes, he knows his flock, but of like primary concern out of that is him taking care of those who he has ordained and put into ministry, that he is taking care of them um, for their sake, so that they can actually help take care of the flock that, is intru- that he entrusts to their care. Now, that's not a denial that, as he is the chief shepherd of all of the flock, but there's a kind of emphasis that I think is, in our situation, with how far flung we are. Um, well, how, it's only been, what, maybe 10 years where there's a few other Orthodox churches outside of uh, St. George within this region. I mean, it's only within the past, what, 10, 12 years that we have St. Saint Tikhon's, St. Maria's, St. Nectarios or even Christ the Savior that that we actually have other churches around us because you have other mission parishes where there's nobody for two, three, four, five hours especially as you start getting out like Montana and those kind of places Colorado What did y'all make of chapter 6 and the first verse Or the first sentence,
0: I think at like the the lowest level, it's kind
1: of just like proverbs or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, go Can, do you have, do you have this translation? Is that what you're looking yes, at? Can okay. you read it for me? <clears throat> now, the more anyone sees the bishop keeping silence, the more ought he to revere him. What is that about?
2: <laughs> well, mine says the more anyone sees the bishop being silent, the more one should fear him.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's Victorian. <laughs> 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 Revere, fear. fear, yeah. yeah. We were going like, here like, now like... like, like what he gonna, what's, he what's he going to do, do next? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> the more reserved a bishop is to be seen, the more you have to be respected. Reserved? Which translation is that? You got a few there, Look at you? All right. I think, yeah, I think I have copied that. Um... I prefer the silence one, mostly because this will come up in different letters, actually. There's something about Ignatius and the silence of the bishop. What do you make of that? So, reserved, uh, not speaking. He seems to think that that calls forth more respect or honor.
0: It kind of echoes back to Jesus' silence at trial, not defending himself.
1: Mm that's some of the thoughts little Mark Twain tell me about that (laughs) let's look at 14 and 15 I like both of these answers (laughs) I have to to say that I like the Jesus one better but (laughs) I like the Mark Twain one let's look at chapter 14 and 15 least I have. Especially, yeah. Uh, does anyone else have this translation available? Sorry, Zach, I feel like this translation is... More people are following it. Everyone oh, that's fine. <laughs> I know, it I, know I had a, an odd one out. <laughs> Do you have 14 and 15? Yes. Vince, can you go ahead and read it? Both. Yes, please.
3: None of these things is hid from you. If you perfectly possess that faith and love Toward Jesus Christ, which are the beginning and the end of life. For the beginning is faith, and the end is love. Now, these two, being inseparably connected together, are of God, while all other things which are requisite for a holy life follow after them. No man, making a profession of faith, sins, nor does he possess love hate anyone. The tree is made manifest by its fruit. So that those profess themselves to be Christians shall be recognized by their conduct. For there is not now a demand for mere profession, but that a man be found continuing in the power of faith to the end. And then 15. Yes. It is better for a man to be silent and be a Christian than to talk and not be one. It is good to teach if he who speaks also acts. There is then one teacher who spoke and it was done. While even those things which he did in silence are worthy of the Father. He who possesses the word of Jesus is truly able to hear even his very silence, that he may be perfect and, that, and may both act as he speaks and be recognized by his silence. There is nothing which is hid from God, but our very secrets are near to him. Let us therefore do all things as those who have Him dwelling in us, that we may be his temple's. And he may be in us as our God, which indeed he is, and will manifest himself before our faces. Wherefore, we justly love him.
1: Between those chapters, like I, I really like it. It's just, um, Can I read 15 from this
0: translation? Sure. It was interesting and it, as a side to what he just... It is better to keep quiet and be real than to chatter and be unreal. It is a good thing to teach, if that is, the teacher practices what he preaches. There was one such teacher who spoke and it was done, and what he did in silence is worthy of the Father. He who has really grasped what Jesus said can appreciate his silence. Thus, he will be perfect, his words will mean action, and his very silence will reveal his character.
1: So I think... um I think we can tell here, uh, and it's also a helpful reading hint, uh, because you can always, when you're reading, especially works like the Father's, you get to a sentence, you're just like, what? (laughs) What does that mean? If you persevere through reading the whole work, you might stumble across a few paragraphs that then illuminate for you. Uh, Obviously, this is true for about any writing, but I think especially the Father's, if you look for the structure, they will usually tell you what they're going to do. Because uh, you know, it, it can be hard to read 4th century, 5th century texts. Um, it's even hard for us these days, apparently, to read books <laughs> uh, because of the old internet. But they usually tell you what they're going to do, and if you look for these lines, like, they will then start, like, and now I'm going to talk about da-da-da. They really are usually going to start talking about such and such. So with Ignatius here, um, silence is this fascinating, if you read the academic stuff about Ignatius on this, it gets really funny really quick. Because they're like, he's a Gnostic. <laughs> <laughs> he's talking about silence. What are they talking about? And I think if you look at 14 and 15, he's talking about, I and mean, we think of it like there's a speculation as to what happened to him. Why is he on the road to Rome? But, what exactly, so there's, there's theories, because he never really specifically says uh, exactly, if I'm remembering correctly, because um, I haven't reread all of these letters since two or three years ago. Um, basically, some of the theories are that you had some issues within the church where he was at. So obviously he's shoring up, uh, you have people, just like Paul, right? You have people who are going around telling idle uh, you know, gossip, have people who are going around literally uh, teaching false doctrine, which is also what we already see here in Ephesians. Um, but I think he gets at a phenomenon, and I who was saying that's kind of almost like proverb literature, kind of like wisdom literature. There's a sense here of, you know, you can tell those who talk a lot and they just talk and talk, and it may be that they're talking about even like you know, church things, theology, whatever, and I'm um, obviously we need to talk about things of the spirit, right, of a spiritual nature that create fellowship. But there can be an element there too where it exposes um, our pride, or I, I, I liked actually the turn of phrase there at the beginning of that uh, chapter 15 uh, of a kind of unrealness because we do like to exchange uh, a lot of words for actual action. You know, that proverb, I think, actions speak louder than words. But there's something about when the bishop is silent, his authority, uh, you revere him uh, because his authority is coming from the manifest will of Jesus Christ. Um, And he kind of operates, I mean, icons kind of operate in the same sense, too. Obviously, icons don't speak, (laughs) but there's an authority and a power that emanates from them. Uh, in the same way that I think a Christian that's actually doing and acting as a Christian, uh, they don't have to fill that void uh, with a lot of words. As I'm sitting here talking on and on, I start to feel a little <laughs> convicted. But there's this great um, story that I heard about, um, it was in Papua New Guinea, I believe, An anthropologists probably 60, 70 years ago or something, uh, maybe earlier than that. But uh, you had the anthropologist going through, and like, you could ride in this canoe between uh, these different uh, tribes, and they literally would speak. He, he was saying there were thousands of tribes that all had different languages, and they all really had nothing to do with each other, but they were all like close to each other. And he went to this one particular tribe, and he interacted with them with technology, and it, it became obvious that once you introduced the camera, they started like, acting like the things that they're supposed to do, even though they'd never seen a camera before, they like, knew once they saw what a camera did that they were like, oh, now we're going to like, gather together and like, cook this meal or something, even though like, it almost seemed like they were posing for the camera. They then, at some point, they had this secret initiation rite for a child into manhood. And what they would do is you know, sequester themselves off from the rest of the tribe and like initiate this man, uh, boy, to become a man. And they asked this anthropologist to come and record the event, this sacred initiation that they'd been doing for you know, millennia. And so they come, he records it, they have to send it off to like, America at this time, because this was years ago, and then they get it back. And then the elders of this tribe created this like, structure where they like, hid where they were going to watch it, because it was sacred, right? And they watched it. And after they watched it, they then said, we no longer have to do this anymore, because now we can just show the young men what the initiation is. So no longer were they going to, like, initiate people with the right. Now they could just watch the recording.
0: Boy, is that a reflection on all of humanity. Right <laughs> <laughs> we don't really have to do anything. All you have to do is watch it. <laughs>
1: So it was this fascinating sort of, like, even these, because we think, like, oh, you know, Americans, (laughs) like, we are obviously, but, like, there's something hardwired into us uh, to kind of, like, I don't know, skip over and not actually go into the, like, actual concrete, like, like, oh, that really takes so much time, that's messy, whatever. Uh, Even this tribe decided they're going to shortcut their, like ancient initiation right to just show them a video um i'm saying all that just in that sense of where our life and the life of faith sometimes can feel like we're kind of like watching something instead of actually doing it and that gap that can exist between our words or our ideations and thinking about what or who we are or what we should be like and then the actual reality and facing like what our actual reality is that gap can be hard to uh to overcome, and I think Ignatius is pointing exactly at that—that that, like our silence needs to be uh, something um, because our actions are speaking for us. We don't have to go around arguing all the time. Again, another Pauline theme, right? Like, please stop arguing <laughs> about <laughs> insignificant details or you know wives' tales, etc. Well, we're we're pushing on our time a little bit here. Are there any other chapters that you would like to look at? Can we pick up that silence when he talks about it again? Uh, I forget where it is, but he talks about the the birth, the... Oh, oh, oh. All those things that happen in silence. Uh, Chapter 19. Yes, please. Actually. Uh, Let's see here. Let's actually start with chapter 18. Although I love 17 too. Do not be anointed with the bad odor of the doctrine of the prince of this world. I love that phrase. Uh, I'll just go ahead and read. Let my spirit be counted as nothing for the sake of the cross, which is a stumbling block to those who do not believe, but to us salvation and life eternal. Where is the wise man? Where is the disputer? Where is the boasting of those who are styled prudent? Right? Those who talk. For our God, Jesus Christ, was, according to the appointment of God, conceived in the womb by Mary of the seed of David, but by the Holy Ghost. He was born and baptized that by his passion he might purify the water. It's also fascinating there, that, that one of the early like commentary of like what the baptism of Jesus is about. Um, now the virginity of Mary was hidden from the prince of this world, as was also her offspring in the death of the Lord, Three mysteries of renown, which were wrought in silence by God. How, then, was he manifested to the world? A star shone forth in heaven above all the other stars, the light of which was inexpressible, while its novelty struck men with astonishment, and all the rest of the stars, with the sun and the moon, formed a chorus to the star, and its light was exceedingly great above them all. And there was agitation felt as to whence this new spectacle came, so unlike to everything else in the heavens. Hence every kind of magic was destroyed and every bond of wickedness disappeared ignorance was removed and the old kingdom abolished God himself being manifested in human form for the renewal of eternal life and now that took a beginning which had been prepared by God henceforth all things were in a state of tumult because he meditated meditated or that should be mm-hmm. meditated the abolition of death okay I was thinking it was mediated but no meditated for the abolition of death was being planned right meditate that right that makes yeah that's why I had to get in my head I thought it was a typo but it's planned abolition it's fascinating here already you get these I don't know like little creedal statements in Ignatius uh, in the same way that you have uh in Paul but even here you can see what um why is he focusing that G- he was she, he was conceived in the womb of Mary by the seed of David why is that important Chapter 20, I think, helps us there.
3: Well, it shows that he's the Messiah and also a real human being.
1: Because he was having to deal with docetism, right? Uh, it seemed like he became one of us. Uh, but no, he really did become one of us. It's also then in chapter 20 is the famous line. If you know one thing about Ignatius outside of like his support for uh, uh, Episcopal government of the church, uh, it's this in verse 20. Uh, at the very end of chapter 20. Does anyone know without even having to look at that what that might be? All right. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead.
0: The medicine of immortality. The
1: medicine of immortality. Who has heard this from Ignatius? What is the medicine of immortality? Eucharist. The Eucharist. The Where's God? Very end of 20.
2: Oh, 20, all right.
1: The antidote to pre- prevent us from dying. What is fascinating here, and I'll just talk, like, instead of going through all the different um, spots here, but you get tied up throughout this, a lot of Pauline threads, right? You have the, that battle where I was talking about the prince of uh, the, the world, uh, the language in 17, uh, you get this, that there is this... Um, kind of cosmic battle that is being, that has been won, for Christ has come and uh, corrected all things, overthrown uh, the prince of this world, um, and you also get throughout uh, the Pauline emphasis that you get through Romans and Galatians, especially, um, uh, I'm thinking about chapter 8 here, of uh, the tension between the flesh and the spirit, let's go. Uh, and I think this is a, a tied in with the silence theme that the, the carnal cannot do things which are spiritual. those who are spiritual do not do things that are carnal. Um, and then again, earlier in chapter seven, you have again the one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first passable and then impassable, even Jesus Christ our Lord. At that, they're at the end of chapter seven. This fascinating kind of, I don't say like dialectic, where you get uh, flesh, spirit, made, not made, God, but in the flesh. That's you know a paradox. True life through death. uh, Mary and God again. These Mary, flesh, God, uh, spirit. Um, This sets up. You can get up later into Gregory the Theologian, where he is uh, debating these things uh, exactly about Jesus Christ. Uh, and it shows up throughout our hymnody often. If you listen to the great feasts, they love to play off these paradoxes. Uh, at the center of uh, uh, Nativity and at Holy Week, right? He who is suspended, suspended he who the suspended heavens, it comes
2: upon the earth. is suspended upon a tree. You
1: you see that already. Here, this like this. They love. They the Greek, Greek Christianity loves this, and see, the Syrian Christians too. Um, Ephraim will do this a lot uh, and it's powerful because it's that, it's that paradox where you do get that there's something about silence that has power, that there's something about uh, faith where it can seem like it's not doing anything but and yet uh, it's exactly how God empowers us to be able to do the things that we need to do um, well, That's kind of also where I saw silence when he was talking about it with the three mysteries like kind
0: of like that these things are so paradoxical that they are inexpressible
1: what were the three? I know the virginity, the birth, and the death. Yes, I
2: just looked at it. That well, he speaks of baptism also. I mean,
0: he says the three mysteries are the yes. virginity of Mary, the birth, of yeah, and the death. <coughs> of the oh, it's specific already. Right. These yep. three mysteries. Yeah. What paragraph is that? 19. 19 the very yeah.
2: first. <coughs> yeah. What were you going to say about baptism, Frank? listen to paragraph 18. Um, mm-hmm. Where he talks about um, um, him being baptized. Yeah, he was born and was baptized in order to purify the water by the passion. Yep. Which, again, it's it's like the creedal statement you were talking about earlier. Uh, so, you know, a lot of a lot of warfare even today um, in evangelical circles about well, what does baptism do? Yeah. Why do we do
3: it? You know, the, Besides the, the question of
1: what, why was Jesus doing it? Yeah yeah because it's like he 's perfect, why would he need to be baptized what's and then through that, that whole him of that entire feast uh the whole john that 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 tension that you get with John, like, why am I baptizing <laughs> you? <laughs> you should be baptizing me uh that paradox that you get there
0: in nineteen also it and we mentioned that this is uh like rhyming with. Paul's Ephesians, Mm -hmm. and you see in 19 the battle of the principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness, which he describes it interestingly with the stars and the moon, and this is as a result of Jesus becoming human, but that because the stars, I guess it's kind of like they they began to disobey their former role, and they do something new at the birth of Christ, It says, as a result, all magic lost its power, all witchcraft ceased, in my translation. Ignorance was done away with, and the ancient kingdom was utterly destroyed, for God has revealed himself as man to bring newness of eternal life, like a whole new creation. Do you think Tolkien read this paragraph? (laughs) Yeah. Formed a forest to the the star. The the music that I read earlier sounds like the Ina Lindley. Yeah.
1: Uh, and the I, old, the I magic <laughs> right the yeah. old magic all of it. Um, yeah, I
0: mean, this—that's awesome. But I, I was just reading this. I thought, well, that's—that's that's where that's like what Paul was saying. With, for our battle is not against flesh and blood,
1: but against the rule. Well, and Ephesians too is yeah. Uh, if you get, I love the book of Ephesians. I, I really want to do something of like catechesis because I think you can explicate everything. Of like an introduction to Orthodox Christianity by just going, you know, a few feet deep on Ephesians because you get the the cosmic struggle that uh, is the ascetical uh, struggle that for us and trying to actually attain and to do what God calls us to do, but it has it's so strong as Christ as the Victor over all of the powers and principalities, mm-hmm. uh, and especially if you re- if you read our baptism, uh, the service of baptism. It's
0: all through there. Uh, well, in the whole ancient world, the magic it's talking about is astrology. It's like the, the power of the fates. Right. Like Christ breaks the fates, and it creates a new possibility for the future.
3: And it's yeah. also interesting that the Magi came mm-hmm. and understood. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also,
1: one of Joseph's uh, dreams yeah. is about uh, what the moon and the stars, mm-hmm. correctly? Yeah, Correct. Earth, those who worship the
2: stars are taught by the stars to from in nativity Psalms. yeah,
0: yeah. psalm 19 <laughs> or is it is that still psalm 19 in the world that's
1: okay what, what about psalm 19
0: the, the one about uh, well it gets quoted as that their their word has gone out to the ends of the earth but it's talking about the stars and then it's also talking about pentecost
1: it's and also then, you know how yes. we then pick up that you know what that's the Procumenon verse 4 hmm. The apostles, oh, the yeah, word has yeah. gone out into all the universe. Yeah. So if you have a feast day for an apostle, that is the premier. That's fascinating. That like so there you get echoes of scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, it picks up on all of these images, uh, and if you that's why you know people. I, I've had arguments before, and we'll end with this. We're going to end on me having arguments with people, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> of just you know, oh, I can just read the fathers. I'm like. But you really need to know Scripture because if you don't know Scripture, you're going to read something like that and just be like, "Well, that's neat." And like, actually, he's he's pulling all of these strands together, and he might be saying it in a different way. Um, isn't even now that I'm even thinking about, it, isn't there uh, even in the Book of Ephesians, if I remember correctly, about talking about uh, shining like stars? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a specific vine I believe. It's not if it's not infusions, it's like.
3: arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Is that what you're thinking? Of?
1: No, it's something more specifically about,
0: about talking about the different glories of different kinds of bodies and the resurrection bodies and the No, that's okay. origin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm talking no, about first Corinthians. First Corinthians. 15,
1: origin yeah. loves to riff off of that too. <laughs> okay, and in a different and in interesting ways, um, but you if you know scripture. Uh, it's not a code book in the way that you can buy all these books at like Barnes and Noble or whatever about the, the Revelation code or book, you know, uh, that you're going to unlock the future. But there is a sense where it's like this deep nest of images and things that are all aspects of uh, our salvation that God has uh, accomplished for us. And it's all like every little metaphor thing is being able to give a spin on it and for us to be able. Uh, to grab onto it in ways that we need you know sometimes we need to hear about you know God a um as our warrior who's going to come and you know destroy our enemies uh, because we feel like we're you know in the foxhole all by ourselves to you know we need him as our shepherd because uh, we need him as our our older brother like the way that Hebrews talks about that we need all of those uh, images metaphors uh, realities really for us to be able to draw closer to him. Uh, in the same way, look, look at all the different songs that we make. The way we, we talk about love, or about our family, about all this. We need this uh, about God. Uh, and that's how he's taught us. Ephraim, and we're going to end on this. Ephraim talks about, um, St. Ephraim talks about how, and he's getting this some from origin too, but it's obvious, if you spend time in scripture, you're going to come up to these parts in scripture and be like, what is going on? I don't understand. This is weird. Um, and that they specifically say, God put those kind of stumbling blocks there for you to have to like kind of fall over it in order to go back and go like, so what is this? And that he actually, through that effort, makes you have to expend some effort in order to gain wisdom, to grow up some, but also then to kind of pursue him as he's kind of always in those words, but he's beyond those words. And so we keep looking for him, um, and that's why the Song of Songs, or, you know, the canticle, uh, is kind of a pinnacle, actually, of theology, uh, because that's the, it's the pursuit of the one who is in love uh, for the one whom he delights in, which is our God. Thank you all.